All right, let's turn to Romans chapter 2. I feel like my microphone needs to go down a little bit. I can hear myself way too much. There we go. Romans chapter 2. And we're ready to jump into this new chapter now. And I think that what we'll do, let's just begin reading in verse 28 of chapter 1, because it does have a connection there, because in chapter 2, verse 1, the first word is therefore, and we'll have to make reference to what he just said. So let's just do this this morning. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll go into our introduction and everything after that, okay? So let's begin in chapter 1, verse 28, and we'll read through verse 11 of chapter 2. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Let's just pause now and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, as we have come now to this very important aspect of worship, and that is the the reading of Scripture and uh, teaching of Scripture and exhortation from Scripture, I pray that you would help me And that you would gift me, uh, not for me per se, but for 
the benefit and good of all your people here. As we, uh, Lord, in this room, most the people in this room, I know know you in truth and love to hear about your word and from your word. So I pray that you would help us in especially an important passage like this that we need to hear and be reminded of um, so that we don't develop the wrong kind of judgmental heart and that we are looking to ourselves first and to our own sins first and then reaching out in your heart of goodness and grace for lost sinners with the gospel of Jesus. So please help us in this way by your spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin this new chapter here in chapter 2 and we've walked thoroughly through chapter 1, I think it's helpful to be reminded of where Paul is headed. Remember what we've said that the whole idea of chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20 is to bring the whole world under the condemnation of God because the whole world is guilty before God in its sin. That includes Jews and Gentiles alike. And if you look at chapter 3 and verse 9, you'll see where he's headed. He says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's what he's been doing. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, he's been charging all, both Greeks and the nations, those that he's mentioned in Romans 1, he's, he's talked about them being under sin, but also the Jews. He's charging the Jews as well, who may have thought they were exempt from what he was talking about in chapter 1. He's bringing them under condemnation in chapter 2, so that when he gets here, he can say that we've already charged in this letter, we've already brought everyone under the just condemnation of God for their sin, as it is written, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. So no one has the righteousness they need in order to enter into the kingdom. And then he says in verse 19 of chapter 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then the good news of verse 21, that there is a righteousness now from God that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ for all who believe in him. So that's where he's headed in this book. Chapter 2, I think, is probably mostly directed towards the Jewish people in their thinking that in chapter 1, as he's addressing the nations generally and humanity generally, like they were exempt from that, okay? Paul is condemning the whole world, every person without exception, including the nations and including the Jews, And that includes for us to think about those raised in religious homes and those raised in debauched uh, cultures. That includes the sophisticated urban dweller and that includes those in some remote tribe living somewhere. That includes rich and poor, educated and uneducated, moral and immoral, 
everyone without exception. And I think it's important to remember that because Paul knows people. If you're going to be in ministry, you've got to learn people and you've got to learn how people think and how people reason. And he's thinking about that and he's even thinking as he's writing to the Romans how some people in that congregation are maybe thinking about what he just wrote in Romans chapter 1. They don't see themselves as the sinner he's described in Romans chapter 1. They can apply it easily to people out there, you see. But they can't apply it to themselves or they don't apply it to themselves. Paul knew this was common way of thinking, especially among the Jewish people. And Paul knows that because, of course, he is a Jew and raised as a Pharisee. He knew how they thought. He knows that they hear what he wrote about humanity generally and those nations, those dirty Gentiles in Romans 1 and think right on, Paul. Wow, this is good stuff. That'll preach how terrible those nations are. And I'm glad we are not like that. I'm glad we have the law. And we know the difference between what is right and wrong. And we're part of God's special people. So what you're saying is true as it applies to everyone else out there, just not to us. And I don't think that problematic way of thinking has changed much in 2,000 years. It is now not necessarily for us anyway, applicable to the Jewish people as much as it is to American Christian people. American Christian people who think they're living pretty moral lives and they have the Bible and they know what's right and wrong and they can watch the news and they can see the sin of their culture. They can point it out very well. But they themselves don't live in any extreme forms of sin. Perhaps they never have. They've never lived at any outward blatant sinful indulgence. They've always managed to keep a job and pay their taxes and take care of their families and go to church most of the time. And so they hear about the wickedness of the world and the nosedive into immorality our culture is experiencing and they, of course, are outraged by it. And they cry out against the LGBTQ plus agenda. And they disconnect their Netflix and Disney Plus. And they listen to Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson. And they're waiting for the day when the Lord will come and judge the wicked world around them, you see. Because to this person, the one Paul's addressing in Romans chapter 2, sin is always out there somewhere. But it's never in here. And that's a real problem. And Paul knows that's a real problem. And so he's got to point it out. He's an evangelist after all. And he knows the pagan, drunkard, immoral person needs the gospel as much as the religious 
self-righteous, moralistic person needs the gospel of Jesus because after all, remember, he's bringing everyone under the same sentence of sin. No distinction. Because at God's judgment, he's not a respecter of persons. And as we've just read, he'll, he'll judge each person according to their own deeds. And his judgment is according to truth. And in addition, this person that Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 2, and this is probably where I'm going to head mainly in just a few minutes, is missing something very important. Not only are they thinking wrongly about God's judgment against sinners, but I think with that kind of person, and what creeps into all of our hearts probably, is that in their judgmentalism of the world around them, they're missing God's heart of goodness towards sinners and his genuine heartfelt desire to save sinners. So in this we can't forget, when we're talking about the wrath of God being revealed against sinners, we also can't forget the context of this entire letter. It's the good news that God save sinners and the good news of that gospel message and that God sent his son to save these people you see what we need to do as we're analyzing this passage is not be thinking about anyone else but ourselves right and even in the way it's shaped it gets us to ask ourselves is this me? Am I like this? Do I think this way? Okay. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul issues a warning to anyone who is judgmental of the sinful world around them. They're judgmental of others, but they're practicing sin in themselves and in their own lives. You see that? It's a warning, isn't it? Therefore, he says, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you, which kind of opens it up to anybody. The possibility is anybody that's out there thinking this way. You who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What are those same things? The things he just mentioned in Romans chapter one, aren't they? That's why he says, therefore, it's connecting it right to what he just said. He's flowing right into his next train of thought. He's directing it right at these judgmental people. And he's saying, you have no excuse if you stand in judgment over them because you yourself are practicing these same kind of things. And do you remember what we said, especially about those verses 28 to 32, the way he designed it, he drew out sins that maybe outright you're not necessarily guilty of, but there are sins in here which I think could fit anybody really, right? Covetousness and envy, deceit or gossip, those kinds of sins. In other words, not an exhaustive list, but just all these kinds of sins. In all of them, he said in chapter 1, verse 32, that the people who practice such things deserve to die. They're under the same penalty of death as everyone else. And he's saying, now, if you're standing in judgment over the world and yet you're practicing these same things, 
I'm warning you that you're condemning yourself. You're actually building the case against yourself because you're saying that's a sin deserving of death and that's a sin deserving of death and yet you're practicing the same kinds of things. You're building the, the case against yourself. These are people who have these sins and are living in these sins and he uses that word practicing very Uh, That's a very important word to catch. It's not as though the Christian who stumbles in sin occasionally, there's a difference between that in practicing something, right? Or in their life, in their walk, they're just carrying on in this particular sin. And either they're not seeing it or more likely they're not admitting it. I think what he's describing here is a hypocrite. One who can stand in judgment against others and yet be very comfortable with his or herself and their practicing of the very same kinds of sins. That's hypocritical, you see. And he's warning them there. And I like how Paul doesn't even try to prove that this person is practicing these kinds of sins because he knows that the person he's talking to is going to hear this and they're going to know he's talking about me. Nobody else may know this about me. But Paul knew it, and I know it. You're practicing these things. You're giving into these sins. You're doing these things, and yet you're standing in judgment over others. You may be fooling others, but you're not fooling me, and more important than that, you're not fooling God. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Is that really the way you're thinking? And you have the knowledge of God's judgment coming and you really think that somehow you can judge others for those kinds of sins and do them yourself. And yet you're going to somehow bypass his judgment. On what grounds? Verse 5, because of your hardened and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wow, you're judging others, but you're not judging yourself rightly, but God will, you see, and His judgment will be righteous and according to truth. Verse 16, he says, on that day when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What a terrifying verse. The things about you that no one else knows. The sinful things about yourself that no one else knows, but God does. So he says to them, In verse 1, in his warning, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse. Does that phrase sound familiar? It actually should from what we just studied in chapter 1. Did you know he used a similar phrase in chapter 1? If you look at it in verse 20. He says, For the wrath of God, well, in 18, he's saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. And he's, this is what he means, verse 19, for what can be known to God is plain to them because he's shown it to them. Remember in 
revelation, in general revelation and in creation itself, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells the moralist Jew or Christian with the Bible, he says to him, you're on the same level as the immoral pagan who knows there's a God and yet suppresses the truth about him in his unrighteousness and becomes an idolater. In the judgment, you're on no better standing Regardless of the fact that you have the law or that you've been um, circumcised or you're part of the covenant people of God or that you have your Bible or you go to the right church or you know all the right theology, that's all irrelevant. You're without excuse on that day of judgment just like they are. Can you see, friends, how he's bringing everyone under the same just judgment of God Friends, if you are seeing, if we are seeing the sins of others and never our own, that's a real serious problem. If we are more agitated or concerned with the sins of others than we are with our own sins, that's a real problem. If we are more harsh in our judgment of others and their failings than we are on ourself, you see, that's a real problem that he's addressing here. That's a Romans 2 heart. And the way he brings this to bear gets every single one of us to ask, is that me? Do I do that? What is my heart towards the lost world? What was I feeling? What were you feeling as we were going through Romans 1 and we were talking about this moral downgrade that is so evident in our culture at large? What were we feeling during those moments? How were we thinking about the world around us and the people of our nation What was our heart towards them? Do we see ourselves as equals before God in judgment? Now I understand that we are no longer living in that. We are no longer that way if we've been saved. But remember the difference between everyone else that we're seeing in us is only one thing. It's grace to us it's saving grace applied to us we have to understand that there is no difference now let me make this comment here Um, I know that many of us many of you have sensitive hearts to the word of God most of you I think, know the Lord in truth, and so your heart's sensitive. So as soon as you hear something like this, you're thinking, well, I don't want to be guilty of that. And so I, I'm no longer going to 
um, call out sin as I see it, right? I'm, I'm no longer gonna to say someone else is a sinner because I, after all, I can't do that. I, I'm not without sin myself, so I just, you know, we can't call sin, sin anymore. We can never talk about the wrath of God or the sin of God. But that would be the wrong understanding of what he's talking about here in judging. Because actually, calling out sin is exactly what he's doing, is it not? <laughs> I mean, he's being very open and honest about what sin is and how terrible it is and the wrath of God it induces. So when the Bible tells us not to judge, it's certainly not telling us not to judge sin in that sense, that we call out sin as it is. And the need of repentance that a person has. Otherwise, we would have to basically skip a great portion of this letter in our preaching. Say, because we don't want to talk about the sin that we see, we have to call it out. But I think that the type of judgment that he's talking about here and the heart that he's talking about is that heart that looks out as sinners and condemns them without any hope of the gospel for them. It's a condemnation that comes with the law of God that says what's right and wrong and clearly they're in the wrong but without the heart of God that wants to see them turn from the wrong so that they can be saved. It's actually a heart of animosity or hatred or disgust for the world around them. This is exactly the problem that the Jews had cultivated. They had the law of God. They had the covenant with God. They knew who they were in God's greater plan. And so as they began, though, to look out at the lost world, they began to develop hearts of animosity towards them. Hatred, thinking they're better. That's the judgmentalism that he's talking like that. So here's what I want to do just for the remainder of the minutes that we have left, I want you to look at Luke's gospel because Jesus was confronting this Romans 2 heart his entire ministry. And Luke brings this out. So turn to Luke chapter 5. Maybe keep your finger maybe in Romans 2, but turn to Luke 5 and look at this account. It comes up three times now, uh, this this kind of interaction that, that Jesus will have with these Romans 2 way of thinking people. And look at chapter 5 and look at verse 29. This is right after uh, Jesus called Levi or Matthew uh, to follow him. Uh, Matthew, of course, was a tax collector, which was the ultimate no-no among the Jewish people because you were working for the Roman government and they were often very greedy and uh, stealing money from, the, from the, their own people and so they were just despised. And Jesus says, this is the kind of person that I've come to call. He calls Levi to follow him. In verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Can you see already that Romans 2 heart of judgment 
on others is actually a heart that, why would you even be engaging these people? They deserve the judgment of God. So why are you sitting with them? Why are you eating with them? And Jesus doesn't deny that they're sinners, does he? That wasn't the direction he goes. He actually refers to them as spiritually sick. In need of a spiritual physician. They got real problems. But he says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. And what does repentance, when, when a person repents, friends, and they trust in Jesus, they are saved. So essentially, he's saying, I'm calling them to experience the forgiveness and grace of God. This is the whole reason I'm here. I've come to call people like this. I want to see them saved. That's the heart of Jesus. And that's the heart of God. So a right heart of judgment would say to a person, you have a serious problem here and it's your sin. But the good news is you can repent of this and place your trust in Jesus Christ and he in his goodness and kindness and mercy will forgive you and save you. That's the right heart of judgment. Now look at chapter 15 of Luke's gospel. This was a big deal to Luke, I can tell as he puts these kinds of interactions in a number of times. And in Luke chapter 15, another account here with these tax collectors and sinners. Now listen to this, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The him here, of course, is Jesus. But don't pass over that verse. Especially among the Romans 2 crowd, that seeing this happen seeing this rabbi who's becoming well-known at this point in his ministry in Luke's gospel, and all these tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to him. That wouldn't have missed their attention. It didn't, as a matter of fact, because look at verse 2. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And even in that, I think we're revealing the heart of both Christ and these Romans 2 judgmental people. And the heart of the Romans 2 judgmental person has a disdain. And I think it was detectable. It had to be. Among the tax collectors and the sinners, those who needed the good news, those who needed the grace and kindness of God to be extended to them so that they can return to a right relationship with their God, but with the people who possessed the word of God at that time, with the, with the Jewish leaders, all they felt from them was hostility and disdain, and that was a problem. And then along comes Jesus, and they must have detected something radically different from him. Here was one who wasn't beating around the bush about their lives. They knew where he stood. They knew he said that, that you shouldn't even relax one little t- 
tiny command in God's law. He held it up and said that it was sin, but there was something about him that sinners who began to see that they were sinners could come to him now and he would receive them. There was a detectable difference from the heart, right? And might I just suggest, friends, that we, as his people, as the people of Jesus, the body of Christ, should have that same distinction about us. Now, I want to be clear here. Jesus said that we would be hated for righteousness' sake. That's true. The world's going to hate us because we preach what's right. They're going to hate us because we say what's sin. They're going to hate us for our own righteous lifestyles, as a matter of fact, that are a constant reminder of their unrighteousness and of biblical truth. They're going to hate us. But let's make sure that their hatred of us isn't because of our hatred of them. Because Jesus didn't hate these people. We have to make sure that as we're pronouncing the righteousness of God, it comes with the heart of God. This heart of kindness and grace, and a desire to see sinners saved. So in verse 3, he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, he said, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That there is actually celebration in heaven when a sinner turns from his sin. This is what Jesus wanted. This is the heart of God. Not a disdain for sinners, but a really good heart that says, I want to see sinners saved. Friends, they should have known this because this is not a New Testament concept. This is what God told his people in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 and 11, listen to this. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How can we live? Now, hold on one second. This is a person now. This is describing, before you go to the next verse, put that verse, uh, first verse back up there. This is describing a person who seems to be acknowledging their real problem with sin. And they're wondering, what can I even do about this because I know God's righteous wrath for sinners. And in verse 11, God tells Ezekiel, you say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Why would you continue in the path of death when you have a good God that says to you, you turn to me, I forgive, I save, you see. 
Why would you continue in it? That's the idea. What is God's delight? What rejoices the heart of God? What does he find pleasure in? It is not the death of sinners. According to Ezekiel 33, from that there is no no delight, no pleasure. It's necessary because God is righteous and he will render each one according to his works. And the wrath of God is this natural response of God's uh, when, when sin occurs. And, and when, when, as people have turned away from him, it's this, this natural response of wrath. We often think about wrath as flying off the handle, right? Because that's how we express wrath. We always have, we have unjust anger. Oftentimes our anger is not just. This is why Paul had to say, be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. The reason is, is because when we're angry, we're in great danger of sinning. Guess what? God isn't. And he's not flying off the handle and throwing dishes around heaven when he's angry and in his wrath. It is a natural result of his righteousness. But his true pleasure is found, friends, in this. Listen, when a sinner repents and looks to Jesus Christ, that's when from the lips of Jesus we know there's rejoicing in heaven when this happens. There's a delight in it. And I think that the problem within Israel and the problem now within the American church is that we can forget God's heart for sinners. We know that there's wrath and it's righteous and we don't hide it and we, we worship God because of who He is and in His righteousness. But we can forget the heart of grace and kindness. You know, I'll just leave us with this. Didn't even get nearly close to what I wanted to do. But look at verse 4. He says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, now in this context, he's speaking to this judgmental person. You're continuing in this sin. And God has been kind to you. And God has not snuffed you out as he would have rightfully done. And maybe you're mistaking that kindness and not destroying you. You're mistaking that kindness of God to be saying that you're okay. And you're, you're misapplying that kindness because it is the kindness of God designed to lead you to repentance. So if you're a hypocrite, and hypocrites know who they are, they're acting. That's what hypocr- hypocrisy is. They're just pretending. So they know they're pretending. If you're a hypocrite, I say to you, from Ezekiel, why would you die in that? Turn from your hypocrisy. Did you know that Jesus came to save hi- hypocrites? And he came to save self-righteous, judgmental people. I mean, we're studying the letter of a man who was a self-righteous Pharisee and a hater of the Gentiles and yet was practicing the same kinds of sins. So the grace is extended. Just turn from that and look to Jesus as your sole source of righteousness. 
But understand, friends, that in our hearts as Christians, do we have that kindness of God towards the lost world? Demonstrating kindness and compassion? Or do we demonstrate the hatred and animosity? The wrongful judgmentalism of hatred and animosity instead of God's kindness that can and does lead people to repentance. Matter of fact, I think this is probably the number one attribute accompanying the gospel that God will use in bringing people, sinners, to themselves is just this concept of I'm going to tell you you're a sinner, but I'm not, I'm not pushing you away and I'm not judging you in that way and I don't hate you. And I'm on the same level as you, except I have turned and looked to Jesus Christ, my salvation, and showing people kindness and like that you're actually really treating them as human beings who are made in the image of God, right? Like actual human beings, persons, regardless of how far they have gone. And that kindness God can use through his people with the power of the gospel to lead them right to repentance and into salvation. It's my prayer that as we think through Romans chapter 2, we will be looking to ourselves first and understanding the righteous judgment of God against us, but then also cultivating us in us this amazing, the, the, the amazing heart of God for the lost of this world. Let's now pray to that end. Father, we need your grace to see these things. We need your grace to apply these things into our life. Please By your spirit, make us internally what you want us to be, how you want us to think and feel. We pray that by your spirit, you would continue to shed abroad the love of God in our hearts and that that love would flow through us to a lost world, that we would never lose sight of the heart of Jesus to call sinners to saving repentance. We ask this in his name.